0: Founders were were politicians, and so there was this struggle between uh, the person that wanted to be the, the people that wanted a strong central government, the people that didn't want a strong central government. So it was a compromise, and um, it works in a lot of ways. And you know there there are nice things about a federal system, so that you have you know different different levels of power, different levels of responsibility, all that, and especially in a large nation. Uh, but it's just Democracy is messy and slow, and that's what we're seeing now.
1: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy around the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris
2: Beam.
3: I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. So, guys, we are in, I believe, week five of, of recording coronavirus related episodes and our counting? time is a social construct. But no, we uh, we are recording uh, remotely. Whoa. I'm sure listeners have picked up on that. Cue the dog. There's you guys a plan dog. It's not my dog. <laughs> um, I know we've all been watching the various briefings that have been happening, both from President Trump and, and various governors throughout the country. And that highlights some conflict and some unique aspects of American federalism, which is what we are going to talk about today. And uh, joining us for the interview is Charles Barrio, who is a professor of political science at Florida State University. Before we, we get into some of the, the COVID-19 implications, um, can you guys help us understand exactly what federalism is, maybe some of, of how it came about, those sorts of things? how far back should I go? Just start talking
2: and if it gets really boring, we'll stop you.
3: (laughs) You know, at one time there was the Articles
1: of Confederation and, uh, you know, that was our original system, right? And it was a very, very, very weak national government. Right. It was Uh, literally
2: a confederation, right?
1: It was literally a confederation. And for a variety of reasons in the post-revolutionary period, uh, you know, our very smart elites who would design the Constitution realize that they needed to be both more national power, but also that the states, which were called states because they were meant to suggest the idea that each were like individual sovereigns in mm-hmm. themselves, uh, would also have to retain a significant amount of power.
2: So this, anybody who's seen Hamilton can follow you so far.
1: There you go. There you go. (laughs) Hamilton was uh, one of the believers in stronger national government. And and of course, there were others who were very concerned about strong government power, especially those opposed to the Constitution, who we call the anti-federalists. But, you know, the Constitution was designed to try to sort out a system of powers And along with the checks and balances, which we've talked about at other times, you know, where Congress can check the executive and the executive can check the Congress and the courts and all of that, you know, federalism was seen as one way of limiting the concentration of power within the national government or within any one branch of the national government.
2: So, so, uh, you know, keep picking up with the Hamilton theme, the, 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 the degree to which we have a federal government, or a national government, insofar as it's reflected in the Constitution, uh, that was as far as they could push, and still get the Constitution ratified. Is that fair right? To say? And
1: yes, and it was a weak national government. Right. I mean, it was we had congressional government for the most part, really through, you know, with the exception of, of course, the Civil War period when when you have a very strong national government asserting its asserting its power, it's really through the progressive period that national politics are dominated by Congress. But then beginning with the progressives and then particularly into the New Deal, you had national political leaders trying to assert more national power, uh, the courts interpreting elements of the Constitution in ways that allowed them to do it, because what the Constitution did was to try to sort things out in a particular way, and that was to give the national government a very fairly narrow range of powers, clearly enumerated. We mm-hmm. call them the enumerated powers. For example, you know, only the national government can coin money. The governor of Pennsylvania cannot,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and and that actually is kind of a relevant thing because the Fed right now can kind of make money. Right. But Pennsylvania can't. But then they put in several other, you know, there's several parts of the constitution that we all know well, or have heard of anyway, that are actually all about federalism. You know, the supremacy clause, which says that federal laws always uh, trump state laws, or the commerce clause, which says that the federal government can only get involved in, in commerce across states, not within a state. Uh, or the general... Welfare Clause, which gives the national government the powers to uh, act in the general welfare, or the 10th Amendment, which reserves all powers not already mentioned to the states. And so when you get into an area like this, it's generally expected that public health, police powers, those generally reside in the states. But I think the the ability for the national government to really exert itself and to come through with its resources is up to the national government to go ahead and take that. The general progression right. in the United States has been one towards greater national power. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Trump administration up until this has basically, I think, tried to grab national power when it can. But in this case, it has, you know, largely deferred to the governors, although you deferred get the might be
2: not the verb I would choose.
1: But, you know, the other area where this has really come up has had to do with uh, the ability to get the resources that are needed to fight this thing. You know, so states have certain powers, but they don't, as you said, have the power to run a budget deficit. So that creates limits on what they can do. And they also don't have a National Production Act. So I don't think that Cuomo can, you know, go to General Motors and tell them to start making ventilators. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually, the president can.
2: All right. Well, I think we, you know, that's federalism 101 or, you know close to it anyway so and it is Uh, 101
1: pandemic version Uh,
2: yeah right exactly and and so now we um we we understand why this is so such an operative question right now and uh it's great to be able to bring in charles and hear from the expert
3: right and so complicated too which i think charles will will speak to as well so let's go now to my interview with charles barrio This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Charles Barrio. Charles, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Oh, great to be here. What an interesting time to be a scholar of, of American federalism. So much to, to talk about. So, you know, I wanted to, to start with a predominant take that I've I've been seeing about how the issue of, of governors and the role that they're playing is, is being framed in the, the media and in the, the punditry. It's something to the effect of, you know, thank goodness, these governors and these states are stepping in because the federal government isn't doing enough. What power, what authority does the federal government have when it comes to responding to the, the coronavirus?
0: Well, the, the federal government has a, a lot of uh, certainly potential authority. They, you know, that's the, the, the main government, so they, they can step in. I think that the states have uh, responded because I think the perception is the federal government was, the national government was kind of slow to respond. So states have stepped in, but now uh, we see the national government trying to re- reassert its leadership, I think.
3: Thinking specifically about public health as we, we have here during the, the coronavirus, what does the federal government have jurisdiction over versus what do, what do the states have jurisdiction over and where do they kind of intermingle?
0: Well, at the local lines, you know, the states have county public health departments and things like that. And those are, are critical places uh, for people to get kind of first-line defense. And, of course, there are not, supp- not a lot of supplies or anything like that. But they have a, a lot of people there working inter- anyway. Uh, the national government has a CDC. You know, there's a the national government. They have uh, the most money. Uh, they have uh, the power to... Uh, uh, kind of say what needs to be done, and people are kind of were waiting for it to happen. It just kind of didn't. Uh, but in terms of health, I mean, um, there's really you know that's one of the the issues with the U.S. health system. It's it's so fragmented. Uh, we have you know we we talk about this this great healthcare system, and it it is for a lot of us that have health insurance, but a lot of it is private based health insurance, and so there's not a lot of coordination. Uh, so the national government. Uh, you know, have the Medicare program, things like that, but they don't—they don't have a big, kind of strong coordinating function there, so that's kind of problematic. So I guess the the issue is there's really there's really not a lot of coordination anywhere. There's not, you know, we think about FEMA as being a place to step in, but they really uh, deal with kind of targeted disasters, not a nationwide disaster, and so um, the states have to uh, rise to the occasion, and some of them just don't have the uh, just don't have the capacity to do it.
3: So it seems like we're seeing a level of antagonism right now between some governors of some states and the Trump administration. Is it fair to say that states typically prefer to fall in line or have more of a united front with the federal government as opposed to having to be at odds like some states seem to be right now?
0: Well, I mean, this is this is a, a really strange sort of time. It's, I, I'm trying to put together m- models of federalism. This doesn't really fit any of them because it's so uh, disorganized. Uh, normally, you know, we have different uh, administrations that have different approaches to, to things and, you know, they, they use them for political purposes and stuff like that. But it's this is just, uh, just so, so disorganized. Some of the governors are uh, doing... Uh, you know, they, they have different models. So our governor in Florida uh, owes a lot of his election to President Trump. Uh, Trump came down and, you know, uh, held rallies for him, stuff like that. And governor DeSantis has done pretty much what the White House has told him he's able to do, uh, that he should do. And so he kind of gave power to local governments. And he was trying to take it back. Uh, we, you know, you can play golf. You know, it's Florida. You can go on the golf course. Uh, you can go to church, all these things. Uh, other governors have different kinds of relationships. Uh, uh, Governor Whitmer in, uh, in, in Michigan has a pretty, I think, bad relationship with the president, um, and she has not uh, seemed to make it any better. I think we see uh, Governor Cuomo um, has gotten along with the president, not gotten along with the president, but he seems to uh be able to to work with this kind of Trump administration model. So it's just um, it's just it's just really interesting. I don't know I don't know uh, how to describe it in terms of you know how federalism normally worked.
3: We've seen sort of through the the Progressive Era and, and through World War II, the, the federal government becoming much stronger. Sure, right?
0: Of course, yeah. And after the Johnson administration, where they used all of this this uh, federal money, Uh, to get the states to do things. You had the Nixon uh, uh, new federalism where they tried to put power back into the states. And so it's kind of flowed back and forth. And I think um, part of what the the problem right now is with the federal system, we've had these years of sort of um, weakening in a lot of states, uh, state government, uh, state institutions. Um, We we don't have the strong bureaucracies we used to have in, in some states. And, and now we have the circumstance where the, the, the national bureaucracy is pretty much weakened too. And so it just makes it, it's just sort of a vacuum there. Um, but yeah, there, there are ebbs and flows in, in, in federalism. But like I say, this is just like nothing. It doesn't, it just doesn't fit any models just because right. it's so uh, dysfunctional
3: what what were some of those those factors that led to the the weakening of those those state bureaucracies i realize it, it probably varies to some degree state to state but are there any any commonalities we we can look to for how the the states ended up in the the place that they are
0: well i think with so many things we've had this polarization and i think that in states that are uh, heavily republican uh we were big on tax cuts and so everybody's big on tax cuts now for example uh, in the midst of this uh, virus, uh, we don't have you know the, the legislature passed their budgets. Just as you know, they just got out of town around the 13th or so of March. They passed their budget. They had you know employee raises, things like that. But the governor hasn't signed it. But the one thing he has signed is a, a 300 million tax dollar tax cut, and so that's the that that weakens everything, right? So, and, and, and we've seen that throughout the States. We're just not, you know, we're not, we're not paying people. Uh, We've just cut taxes so much. It's just not much, much, not much infrastructure left in a lot of places.
3: Right. But at the same time, at least, you know, up through maybe before Trump came into office, the the federal bureaucracy was getting stronger. So it kind of made up
0: for sure Yeah. 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 And that's what's going on now. I think part of the problem is that we have all these acting, you know, officials and uh, the president wants to be uh, the 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 main spokesperson for everything, and that's just that's just a hard way to run things. I think you know uh, the Trump the Trump organization is a pretty chaotic organization for a long time, and so maybe that's just what we're seeing this kind of organizational chaos as a way to manage things.
3: So you know, Trump has has talked. Talked a lot about reopening the country. That that's a big decision that he has to make. He very specifically frames right. it that right. way. But is that a decision that he or or his administration can make in the way that he describes it?
0: I don't think so. I think the governors can make that call. And in the past, I mean, uh, uh, local governments can make that call. And and that's you know we have this these battles between. Uh, among the states, yeah, within states, with local governments and uh, state governments. I, I, I don't think that he can really do that, but I think he if he says he can, I think people might just try to fall in line or try. They're making noises like, okay, we'll try for, I think he said May 1st now, we'll try for May 1st. And certainly most states would like to do that. But I think that's just a, a call that governors are going to have to make. And I think you'll find I think we'll find more independently minded governors. I, I think like uh, uh, Governor Hogan in Maryland, I think he's kind of gone in his own way. I think DeWine in Ohio, uh, two Republicans, but not Trump, you know, not, not Trump loyalist Republicans. So, you know, we'll just see. I think the, I think the governors will have to do what they think is best for their citizens.
3: Yeah, sure, and it, I mean, it kind of begs the question too of like how much of this is just about kind of the the messaging or the the rhetoric of it all to try to get people riled up about this so they put pressure on state leaders or that you know they, to to kind of force the hand of some of these states to to make a decision or to to fall in line with uh, the outcome that that he wants to see happen.
0: Yes, I think it's that. I think it's just the the the. The rhetoric versus the uh, the actual legal power, but I don't I don't know specifically the legal power. I should check that, but I don't think so. You know. mm-hmm. I don't think he has it.
3: So you know we've we've also seen governors really become much more more prominent. Some of them. I, mean, I think if you if you would have asked even six weeks ago, if you would have done one of those like. Jay Leno person on the street type of things, (laughs) a a good number of people might not have been able to say who the governor of their state was. But now we have, you know, Cuomo's on the cover of Rolling Stone this week, and they're kind of taking on these these big roles. What are some of the kind of implications? Like, could we see moving forward, states and governors have a a more prominent role?
0: Fiscal federalism kind of drives things and the, the national government has the most money, and so um, they can have effects. I think that this is just, in a sense, it's sort of a, a vacuum for these governors. They have to step in. I think that some of them would like to have um, a more you know direct directed leadership. and I just I just don't think they see it. They have to do something. But I wouldn't speculate on long-term mm-hmm. effects. It's certainly going to affect some people's political careers. It, you know' it's, it's putting you know, uh, Cuomo in the spotlight is putting a lot of people in spotlight. So on that level, sure.
3: So the other thing that we often hear about with, when we think about federalism is that the laboratories democracy, uh, effect, can you explain uh, what that is? And and do you think that we're seeing any evidence of that in the coronavirus response? Hmm. Uh,
0: okay. The laboratories of democracy just says that, that, uh, the argument that, uh, you have a, a lot of, uh, places in a federal system, whether they're local or, or, or statewide, uh, trying different solutions They'll they'll learn what works, what doesn't work. Uh, we might see some of that. I, you know, I was thinking about that. I mean, um, states might have, uh, find better, better method, methods of, uh, uh, treating people. I, you know, uh, they might, uh, uh, initiate better kind of triage. I, I don't know. I mean, th- there might be things like that. I think we'll see differences in states that, uh, for example, you know, we'll see differences in states that expanded Medicaid and didn't expand Medicaid. I think uh, those places that did, uh, more people have access to care. So we, we learn something about that. That's kind of a laboratories of democracy thing, but it's just kind of, it happened a few years ago. And we'll see the outcomes.
3: We've been talking here about uh, all of the, the complications that, that federalism has posed when it right. comes to uh, virus response. And mm-hmm. you could, you know, maybe maybe our listeners are sitting out there thinking, you know, why the heck do we have the system in the ah. first place? Right? It seems like it's caused us nothing, nothing but, but trouble here. So what, what did the, the founders have in mind when, when they were designing our, our system as we have it?
0: Well, I mean, the, the, the founders were, were politicians. And so there is a struggle between uh, the person that wanted to be the, the people that wanted a strong central government and people that didn't want a strong central government. So it was a compromise. And um, it works in a lot of ways. And, you know, there there are nice things about a federal system so that you have, you know, different, different levels of power, different levels of responsibility, all that, and especially in a large nation. Uh, but it's just, you know, Democracy is messy and slow, and that's what we're seeing now. And it's particularly difficult. And I think in a circumstance where uh, you sort of disavow expertise, uh, and you don't, you know, you don't want to accept that expertise. And I mean, I, I think we're just in an odd circumstance now. So you saw, like, you know, we've had disasters where we have, you know, Eclan Hurricane Relief things like that, where we can just, you know, take care of things, and that works well in a federal system. And I think. The problem is, in, in this circumstance, I think uh, it's just mixed messages, and uh, you just have to you have to uh, be willing to concede uh, control to people at some point and, and allow people to make decisions and do what they need to do. And so that's, I think, part of the reason it's such a mess now.
3: You know, one thing that that the the federal Government certainly has is is the military. Um, is is there an opportunity here? Do you think to to rely more on on the military than we seem to have thus far?
0: Uh, certainly, uh, we could uh, use the National Guard, for example. We have guard units all over the country, and they could be a lot of help. And they're well organized. They're they're well equipped for this sort of thing. That would make sense. They have a strong hierarchy. You know, all of those things that you can. You know, it's a command and control organization. That's what you need, you know, clear uh, organization. You know, you're going to do this, 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 and this. This, this, this is how we're going to take care of it. I think right now we're just too uh, diffuse, just too uncoordinated. Too many people, uh, I mean, my gosh, we're, we have states competing against each other for equipment. Uh, people trying to buy equipment, in the states trying to buy equipment, then it gets sold to another country or something like that at some point you have to say, well, we have to, you know, we have to impose some order on this. All
3: right. And, and speaking of, of hierarchies there, we, we've been talking around this, but I think it, it bears asking, asking directly is what is the, the relationship between governors and the president? I mean, they don't report to him, right? It's no, not like that. No, that type it's of structure. not like
0: that. I think it's essentially a, a, a political relationship and, you know, uh, for example, we've seen, uh, I guess a couple of days ago, uh, Gavin Newsom came in and said, oh, you know, I've really got to give a shout out, none of those words. Uh, I've got to say uh, President Trump has been really helpful here. He's really helped us. And so Trump liked that. And so that's a governor. I don't think that Governor Newsom and the president agreed on much, agree on much. But I think Governor Newsom needs he get knows he needs to get that, that material from the president and so he's in the, and he's going to say what he has to say. Um, I think there, there are political relationships, like, for example, our governor in Florida, governors throughout the South, generally these kind of strong uh, Trump-supporting areas. Um, and then uh, other governors, they have to, you know, talk to the president, you know, things like that. And th- this president in particular, I think, isn't real kind of uh, norms or rules oriented. I think it's it's... It's not like, you know, in the Nixon administration, new federalism, um, they, they created um, a set of rules, you know, um, uh, block grants, things like that. They were very different, very uh, much more helpful to sort of the Southwest, you know, different parts of the country than had generally been advantaged. But still, those were kind of standard rules and people could work through them and, you know, get what they could get. Uh, this, I think it's more personalistic. And so I think in this case, uh, the governor's, you know, if, if you're a, a Trump supporting governor, you know, like I say, our governor, he, he talks to the White House before he does things. I'm talking about oh, this dumb guy, he's not dumb. He's just, he wants to get reelected. Um, and so this, this is hard politics. But I think, you know, the right, I think the, the, the correct thing to do is be concerned about the externalities, but that's not the politically easy thing to do. It's very difficult.
3: So thinking about, um, you know, again, how what might happen in the in the scenario we were talking about earlier, where Trump is saying we want to reopen the country and, and governors are saying, no, we're going to keep businesses here closed. I mean, is there any. Any recourse to, to move that forward? Does it go to the courts or is it just kind of this perpetual stalemate between, between Trump and, and a particular state or states?
0: Well, I think the national government always has the upper hand just because of its economic power. You know, uh, and so uh, if, uh, I, I think a governor would be hard pressed to say, no, we're not going to reopen uh, they could, but I think it'd be a, a tough thing. And I think that um, uh, probably the, the federal government, like I say, has the upper hand. I don't know. Um, the governor might have some tools, but um, it, would, it would be tough, it would, especially when you have this super high unemployment, people are losing jobs, losing uh, health insurance, all these kinds of things. It's going to be, it would be tough. I yeah. guess I really don't know the answer. Right now,
3: so. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. yeah. There, there are no easy answers yeah, right. to to these questions right. as much yeah. as as much as we would like them to be in this this particular format.
0: When the uh, it was ordered that the University of Alabama should uh, desegregate, uh, George Wallace stood at the door of the you know the University of Alabama and said, "No, you can't come in." And uh, but the, then that was overruled by the national government and. Uh, they had to desegregate. Uh, the national government had the, the hand there. They had the, the National guard, things like that. So I don't know I don't know if the President would do that, bring the National Guard in um, to uh, open up you know, pennies or something like that, which I think is bankrupt anyway. Um, uh, I don't know if they, if they would do that, but I think certainly the, the national government has the upper hand uh, for better or worse, I think.
3: Well, this has been an, an interesting uh, overview of some of the, the dynamics at play here, as you said. Uh, no easy answers for sure, but but it is helpful to at least um, have a better handle on some of the, the underlying framework of, of these dynamics that we're seeing play out uh, every day with, with the virus response. So, uh, Charles, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: So oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it.
1: It was good to hear Charles's Beaumont draw uh, once again. It's it's been a while. I, I wanted to pick up on what Charles was talking about near the end there, uh, when Jenna asked about uh, laboratories of democracy, and he talked a little bit about Tallahassee and how where he is is not a whole lot going on, and that in other parts of the state things have been fairly loose. And uh, you know, this sounds like federalism to me. You get a patchwork of responses. And I think there are both pluses and minuses to that, Chris.
2: What you're seeing um, is governors responding to what they perceive to be uh, their state's interest, right? So uh, Nebraska hasn't set a, a stay-at-home order. There's like five states, I think, that have not. And and they're saying, well, we can keep the economy going and not endanger our, our uh, our citizenry but when you're talking about a worldwide pandemic you just wonder how smart it is to have 50 yeah. individuals making making their own judgments about their state
1: right yeah you know fe- federal federalism and the sort of varied responses kind of often kind of breaks down when you have a lot of externalities so you know it's an issue with pollution And why often national pollution controls are required because, uh, you know, if one state says do anything and the one next to it says puts great limits on what industry can do, well, bad air doesn't recognize state barriers Mm -hmm. and neither do uh, viruses. You know, there's a real risk if uh, certain communities in Texas, for example, choose not to have strict social distancing, but then You know, who's to stop a student from there coming back to fall classes in Penn State? And then God knows what happens.
2: And the other aspect of this that is uh, one of those externalities is that this is, following the president's lead, there is, it's very difficult to extricate partisan objectives from a governor's decision, right? And so you have... Uh, well, and know. Charles
1: really emphasized
2: that. Right. Exactly. Especially with yeah. respect to Florida. Right. Yeah. If um, what's, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name. DeSantis. If, right. DeSantis, if he wants to get reelected, you know, you got to dance with who he brung you and Trump is who brung him. And so, right. um, and, and therefore, irrespective of what, Public health experts in Florida are saying uh, his poli- his partisan assessment of his self interest is going to line up differently. Yeah, and I you go- I, you don't see yeah. this everywhere, right? Like DeWine is is a Republican, and he's not doing
1: this. You know, I think following up what Charles was saying is you're going to have very different responses from governors depending on what their political re- relationship is with the president. I think that's one thing you'll see. But of course, that's not going to work. <laughs> Because hotspots in certain parts of the country are, are, are going to make it very difficult for other parts of the country to just have free travel and open up.
2: If there is some kind of, of um, fundamental disagreement, some kind of standoff between, let's say, the governor of Pennsylvania and uh, the president, that those Pennsylvanians who follow the president – will act as if the economy and the, and the country uh, the state is open, and those who do, who do not will not and and you'll have this just uh, chaos, right? I mean, you, you won't have any notion of, of uh, how people should behave or whether and you certainly wouldn't have much of the advantage of staying in place, right of sheltering in place.
1: Yeah, that's that's right.
2: If, you know, if there has been, and I think you and I would both agree that there has been this vacuum or insufficiently coordinated uh, response on the part of the federal government, and that governors stepped into that role, um, I, I find it unlikely that everything's just going to go back to the way it was once the crisis is over. I think the states yeah. are, are going to have reemerged as more important players in the national scene
1: yeah so interesting take on it. I think that's possible because I think that certain governors will have gained significant resources in terms of public approval and support, and that is a resource that they can use sure. and uh, and some of them are really being received quite well and have strength that they probably did not have before. Usually, what you kind of think of happening in these sorts of episodes is where the national government, will try to assert powers that it was not necessarily clear that they had. And right. that'll sort of work its way through the courts and we will have a new level of federal power or not. And I'm not exactly sure how that really will work itself No, out. I, I mean, mean obviously
2: none of us know. Because
1: because actually, your states are going to come out of this in a horrible position. Uh, their budgets are just That's true. wrecked. That's just true. Just wrecked. And they are paying out huge amounts in a variety of security and social services and medical care. I mean, you know, they they don't have any idea how they're going to be paying for stuff like this. There That's a really good only- point. Well,
2: you know, I mean, it is true that, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen and, and everything's kind of up for grabs. But Ooh. but it's also really apparent that these um, these questions of federalism are just so operative right now, probably in a way that they haven't been since the civil rights era. And, yeah, I agree.
1: It's just central to what's going
2: amazing. on. It's amazing, and yeah. and and it's meant to be attention. It's meant to be this ongoing struggle. But right now, you're just seeing it in it play out in 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 ways that are just impacting people's lives directly. Yeah. It's, it's and, really and ways we
1: never really have seen. I mean, I think Charles' description of it as a sort of uh, you know organizational chaos is yeah, not, not inappropriate. Right. Yeah.
2: Anyway, so. Um, uh, thanks to Charles for, uh, for giving us his expertise. It, it really is fascinating and, and, again, really important. And uh, thanks to Jenna Spinelli for a terrific interview.
1: Okay. From uh, Democracy Works, I'm Michael Berkman.
2: I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening.
3: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State central pennsylvania's npr station episodes are engineered by andy grant and craig johnson edited by chris kugler jen bortz and mark stitzer and reviewed by emily reddy our interns this semester are nicole grayson and stephanie crane two seniors in the donald p belisario college of communications at penn state Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.
0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.